Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. Today's episode is going to be an entry in the Cinematic Icon series we began a couple episodes back. Conversations like these are a great opportunity to welcome, or welcome back, guests and familiar voices. Storytelling Breakdown writer, producer, and editor Steven Stahovsky is back with us today. Welcome. Glad to be here. So last year we did drop a couple of episodes in October. That was during our first season. Our backs were to the wall a little bit with pandemic production, and it wasn't really by design or anything. Those episodes were going to come out when they were ready, and it just happened to be in October. So today is our first opportunity to talk about Halloween movies. Definitely not the same thing as horror movies, although there's some overlap. And there has been for decades, which is the subject of today's conversation. And this is the part when we were messaging about this, I just asked you guys, what are your favorite Halloween movies? Well, my family watches Phantom of the Opera every year. Mine's Ghostbusters, but it barely edges out Young Frankenstein. And speaking of the monster, mine is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That gives us three, or more, different movies, three very different eras. And we'll start by winding the clock back to 1948. into my favorite Halloween movie, I'm going to give an overarching spoiler alert for the whole episode. There are going to be details that we give about these movies, some of which may be from the 1940s, that if you haven't seen it, will give away pieces of integral information to the plot. So, official spoiler alert, almost 90 years later. Got it. Yeah. And I think we're good to go now. So... Abbott Costello Meet Frankenstein has been a Halloween tradition of mine for over a decade and a half. My dad brought it home on VHS uh, years ago. I do remember we were living in Fort Wayne because I wasn't born in Fort Wayne. We moved here when I was like four. And we watched it and it was hysterical. And at the time, I didn't really know why it was funny. I just knew it was because I was such a little kid. And then it turned into my Halloween night movie every single year i would instead of going trick-or-treating when i got to be about 14 or 15 i would just pop that in and i'd wait for the trick-or-treaters to get to my parents house while they were taking my youngest sister trick-or-treating and i would watch having a costume frankenstein and it's such a crazy movie because it came out on the tail end of all of the 1930s and 40s monster movies and it has some of the biggest names in monster movies in it with people like bella lugosi uh, Glenn Strange and Lon Chaney Jr. All three of them are in there. Glenn Strange was the Frankenstein, right? Bella Lugosi, we all know as 
as Dracula from 1931 and then Dracula again in The Wolfman and Dracula again in Son of Frankenstein and Dracula again in XYZ just tons of other movies um and then Lon Chaney was the Wolfman so it's it's have either of you guys ever seen this movie no no and I have watched it before but it has been a long long time I think the the thing we have to contextualize and you and I were talking about this a little bit before we got on the mics just the absolute absurdity of this pairing it's of Abbott and Costello and these well-known iconic golden age of horror universal monster portrayal actors yeah if there was a modern equivalent it would be like okay let's grab a comedy duo like if Key and Peele decided to do a superhero movie <laughs> and they got Chris Evans, Robert Downey Jr. and Scarlett Johansson yeah. to come out of retirement and reprise their parts <laughs> in this comedy about superheroes. It, That's how ridiculous 100%, this sounds. 100%. Because Bella Lugosi's first Dracula came out in 1931. And so by the time he got to Abbott's Costello Me Frankenstein, he'd been doing Dracula for almost 20 years. And he's, you know, he's one of the most recognizable Draculas, uh, aside from well, Sir Christopher Lee was Dracula for a hot minute. Or Gary Oldman. Or Gary yeah. Oldman, the most, one of the more recent iterations of Dracula. But still, Bela Lugosi's one of the most recognizable Draculas. Mm. And so you have these guys who were, they were the universal monster characters getting thrown in with the essential slapstick humor of Bud Abbott and Lucas Della. So the whole plot of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is the exact same kind of scripting that you would expect from any of the big golden era monster movies with the slapstick duo bumbling around in the script. So it starts off with Bud Abbott and Lucas Della working as porters for a railway company. And there's a big shipment coming in for a local wax museum. And they, of course, there's a hilarious bit where Costello keeps getting things dropped on him because Costello's the funny one, funnier one. That's a really interesting dynamic, those two, because Bud Abbott is always the cynic and the straight man, mm-hmm. and then Lou Costello is always the bumbling slapstick farce kind of a character. And that's just the way that their dynamic works in pretty much everything they do. And they find out that this shipment is supposed to go to this wax factory, and they're all supposed to be monsters. They're like full-size wax casting as a monster. There's an issue with the shim, and they end up going to the museum late at night, and the monsters start coming alive around them. Bella Lugosi's there as Dracula, and he hypnotizes Lou. And Abbott, through the whole opening parts of the movie, never sees any of the monsters. So you have Bud Abbott, like, dude, come on. Just this total cynic of, oh, it was just it was just lightning from, from the storm outside. You're seeing things. You're going crazy. And Lou Costello going, you know, Costello being freaking out. Dude, he's 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 losing his, which is funnier later in the movie because he stops being afraid of the monsters when he should be afraid of them. The way that the movie plays out is just such gold because there are parts of it that some of those old time monster movies they really are kind of terrifying. Oh yeah. In a lot of ways, they're they're super melodramatic and they're you know kind of campy because of the way that they're shot in the the nineteen forties. There's some effects you just can't do. Mm. One element of this film that I recall and it really sticks out to me, even though again it's been years since I last watched it, is the way it uses Lawrence Talbot, the Wolfman. 
yes. and Lon Chaney Jr.'s performance because he winds up being an ally of sorts to the protagonist, the if I remember. Guy. Yeah, Lawrence Talbot is a good human. It's just when he transforms into the Wolfman that things potentially yep. get a little bit terrifying. And like that is the way that I wrote a blog post about this uh, for the Storytelling Breakdown blog where I wanted to create a mechanic in one of my all-time favorite tabletop games, Fury of Dracula, where one of the hunters in that game is the character Lawrence Talbot Ooh, helping to hunt down Dracula, except for when there's a full moon and then he turns into a werewolf yeah. and everything becomes a problem at that point. And that's one of the parts where by that point in the movie, both Bud and Lou are not really afraid. And Abbott is the entire time he's just like, yeah, sure, whatever, man, because that's his character. He's the cynic. And so there's a whole sequence where Lucasello is going through their hotel room and he's being chased by the Wolfman. He doesn't realize the Wolfman's there. And like he gets a the Wolfman gets a door slammed in his face and a, a fridge opened up and it hits him. And Costello's just completely oblivious the entire time. And then they come back to the room a little while later and the place is completely trashed. And Abbott's like, what'd you do? Did you had to throw a rager without me? What, what did I miss? And that's kind of the whole movie right up until the very end that Abbott finally realizes, nope, they are real monsters. And yes, we are in very real danger. The plot kind of finally catches up with everybody. The plot being that Dracula wants to revivify Frankenstein's monster. And he's got a new brain picked out by his assistant, this beautiful woman. Lenore Albert's character, uh, Sandra Mornay, she is Dracula's assistant in this whole endeavor to revivify and remake Frankenstein's monster. And they've decided that Lou Costello's brain is the brain they want to put into the monster <laughs> because he's easy to control. So at one point they're running around Dracula's castle, which is for some reason off of the coast of Florida. Which is where they are. <laughs> and there's a big masquerade ball at the end. And finally all the monsters, the Wolfman and Dracula are fighting. And they set Frankenstein on fire. And the very end of the movie, after you've watched this entire just mess of a show that is incredibly hilarious. But the, the storyline kind of gets a little hard to follow because you lose a little bit of it. And just the ridiculousness of Lucasello and Abbott, Bud Abbott. They finally get away. They're in a rowboat at the very, very end of the movie. And it's my favorite scene in the movie. They're sitting in a rowboat, and Bud Abbott's like, well, now you'll you'll learn you'll never get us involved in this kind of stuff over a dame. And uh, a cigarette lifts up from, a, from one of the empty benches in the rowboat and lights itself. Abbott and Costello are both looking at it, very, very concerned. And a voice says, oh, I'm sorry, I missed, must have missed the party. And they're like, what the heck? And he goes, oh, allow me to introduce myself. And the cigarette takes a drag on itself. I'm the Invisible Man. And they all just jump out of the rowboat <laughs> and start swimming away. And the Invisible Man's just laughing his butt off. And that's the end of the movie. And so I always loved it because I didn't really grow up in a house where the monster movies were super common. But this is was my first exposure to those classic monster movies. Nobody in my house really likes horror, except my, my younger sister really likes horror. But everybody else in my house was like, Ugh, why? Why do I want to do this to myself? I'm kind of of the same opinion. But it's really not a horror movie. It's definitely more of a comedy. But it was that introduction to those classic monsters. So it very quickly became the Halloween movie 
in my mind, and I go back to it every year. I'm looking forward to sitting down and watching it on October 31st this year with a bu- with a bowl of popcorn and <laughs> my wife and probably my boys because there's really nothing in it they can't see and watch Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and still be a little confused how everything works out because <laughs> every time I watch it, I'm always like, how did this happen? Somehow, Sandra Mornay, the character managed to convince Lou Costello that she was genuinely interested in him. And the entirety of the plot goes from the fact that they've picked him out for his brain. (laughs) And so the whole, that opening bit with him getting stuff dropped on his head, she's very, very concerned, like overly concerned, kind of weirdly concerned. That's because she wants to make sure that the brain is still good to use. (laughs) Yeah, that's my favorite. (laughs) So I've never seen this movie you need to and frankly my abbott and costello knowledge is very minimal i have not seen much of them but this sounds like something i'm much more familiar with it sounds like scooby-doo took a lot of inspiration from this movie you know scooby-doo probably took a lot of inspiration not only from that movie but from the slapstick humor of the 40s particularly when you're looking at that abbott and costello the three stooges i mean Mm -hmm. because of the cartoon nature of of scooby-doo i feel like that slapstick you can oh you can overdo slapstick so much more mm-hmm. in cartoon that they had to have, and it does the when you start talking about it like trying to go through the the plot it does start to kind of sort of sound like a Scooby Doo episode. Well, right? yeah, because when you were describing that Wolfman scene where he like runs and get hit by a door or whatever, I was yeah. like <laughs> in my head I'm seeing the the run back and forth between the hallways that Scooby Doo always does. Yeah, uh, and it feels a little bit like that because I think they do go across the 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 hotel hallway like three or four times to different rooms quote unquote but it's the exact same hallway on the exact same set with different room numbers on the doors the exact <laughs> same two doors even probably mm. laurel and hardy did that too as far as like that beautiful blend of the old school slapstick comedy and humor mm-hmm. but then also some genuinely creepy motifs especially if you if you are of a younger age and watching these films i can't remember exactly which actually no, I do remember. I think it's uh, a chump at Oxford, uh, which is one of the old <laughs> Laurel and Hardy films where uh-huh. they are at the college and are very much like they 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 are persona non grata at the college. They're the people that are actually there and established do not like them. Mm-hmm. And there's a sequence where they like in this maze, if I'm remembering right, and they're both kind of hunched up against the wall of it, and one of them goes to light a cigar for the other but it's someone else reaching their arms through and they don't realize that there's a third person <laughs> interacting with like the lighter yeah. and everything that's going on. And it's just, it's such a wonderful blend of creepy and eerie if you're young enough, but still the, we can see where as Caleb, as you just mentioned with Scooby-Doo and with a lot of other things as comedy and horror get blended to great effect and mm-hmm. a lot of things that we enjoy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is definitely one of the origin points. Yeah. One of the funniest things to me watching it now is their their special effects. They had to do the the drawing in of Bella Lugosi turning into a bat. And so <laughs> okay. you get this really weird cartoonish looking sequence of him morphing and then when it turns into the bat, it is literally a bat puppet and you can seriously see the string. 100% you can see the line, the wire on the bat and it's it's what they had, you know? If if I had been watching this in the 40s i probably wouldn't even i might not notice or if i did notice it wouldn't matter because we have we we have grown up in particular the three of us have grown up in an age where special effects have just gone so far beyond even what we were born into 
and what a computer can freaking do to the screen that now we go back and we watch the shift of the Wolfman going from Talbot to Wolfman and is well done, but it's essentially just still images layered over each other of the progression of his makeup. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. all it really, that's, that's what it is. It just adds to that almost nostalgic feeling of the, the whole movie just is, I mean, for me, it's a giant nostalgia trip because I've been watching it for so long. But watching it in general, all the, those old monster movies have such an interesting nostalgia to them. And part of that, I think, is because the effects are, I don't want to say primitive, but they're limited. They're so limited in what they could do. And it's even before the practical effects became so convincing later down the line in the 70s and the 80s, mm-hmm. before they had that ability even. And these guys, like Lugosi, like Lon Chaney Jr., like Lon Chaney the Sr., who's credited with the movie. He was actually dead when the movie was released. He's credited in the movie because of how instrumental he was to the monster movie. Uh, I mean, a lot of us are familiar with the image of the original Phantom of the Opera, his image of uh, Quasimodo, Mm -hmm. the Hunchback Notre Dame comes to mind. He was really, he was known. I mean, one of his names was the Man of a Thousand Faces. And his work doing that kind of practical effect makeup is what led to being able to do those monster movies in the 30s and 40s like we saw them and from there you go on and you get those pra- those movies with those seriously awesome practical effects and i think it all does still go back to those horror monster movies even the b movie sci-fi movies of the 40s and 50s and 30s so which is a very cool it's very cool it's one of my, and so that's that's why it's one of my favorites there you go I have one thought I want to tack onto this before we get into we move on the into 70s and the, the 80s, 80s, which you have set up very well. And that is one element of, again, the effects and what could be done in the era of the golden age of horror. You're up against a censorship apparatus and very oh, strict rules about what yes. you can and cannot show. Yes. And I have always thought, especially with horror, you know, these rules almost make it worse because if you can't show it on screen then that means the audience's minds are filling in the blanks and that could be more horrifying than anything that any of the directors or creators envisioned honestly that i think that's what made bella lugosi so effective as dracula because he's still his performance in the 1931 dracula you ever go watch that it's creepy he is legitimately creepy and it's because of what they can't show him doing that he gains that kind of staying power of creepy. Yeah, I've always found restraint more compelling in horror movies. Like, yes. whenever I watch a scary movie that has something supernatural in it, and they finally show the monster or the demon or whatever, Insidious is the one that specifically comes to mind. Yeah. When I see the monster crawling on the wall, I'm not scared of it anymore. Nope. Because I'm like, oh, okay. Completely lost. There it effect. is. Yeah. I was actually really disappointed with the, with the way that monster looked in Insidious. Because yeah. up until then, I was horrified. And I don't like horror movies. And my sister made me watch it. I remember my younger sister made me watch Insidious. I have two younger sisters, right? So there's one who's just younger than me. And then the one who's a lot younger than me. So the one that's just under me, she made me watch Insidious. And she loves horror movies. I hate them. And I remember being like on the edge of my seat trying to get out of the room through the whole movie. Then we finally see the monster. And I, I think I laughed. If I watch anything that's a horror movie, I gravitate towards thrillers. I gravitate towards the psychological, suspenseful type movies. Like, I thought 
Shutter Island oh, was... I love Shutter Island. I thought it was legitimately terrifying. I was terrified of Shutter Island, and it's not because of anything necessarily in the movie that is scary, although there are there are definitely plot points where I'm like, this is scary, really. But it was because it made me feel like I was losing my mind almost as much as the characters on screen. For those of you who haven't seen Shutter Island, Leonardo DiCaprio should have won awards for that movie. <laughs> he should have won. Yeah. Well, there's been that. multiple movies where he should have won before he finally did. And we could be talking about a monster in the most human sense. And again, that idea of not seeing... Like, I just think of towards the end of No Country for Old Men when yeah. Anton Chigurh just steps out onto the porch and wipes his boots and you don't see what he did in the house. But after you've watched him kill people throughout the entire movie, you're, you're filling like, in the blanks. I don't, don't want to know what he did in that house. Well, it's the age old adage of show, don't tell. But sometimes, you know, you show people by not actually showing them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So by going off of Leonardo DiCaprio you've inadvertently given me a wonderful segue to talk about something leading into my favorite pick okay good which is Adam Savage of Mythbusters fame because okay. he is also uh at this point i think very well known as a cosplay fanatic he is and mm-hmm. he will create amazing props and costumes and would even go undercover at enormous comic cons and wait until someone figured out, oh, it's actually him underneath his Jack Sparrow getup or his no face getup. No face. Mm-hmm. I love his interview about being no face and giving away chocolate coins. And somebody finally comes up and goes, uh, uh-uh, uh, I don't want this. The, yeah, that's bad. You stop. Yeah. And it's, he also had a year where he dresses up as a bear and is dragging around a dummy prop of Leonardo oh, DiCaprio goodness. behind him throughout the con. Oh, no! <laughs> Which is my tie-in because he has also been doing a lot of videos about Ghostbusters Afterlife. Yeah. Which is coming out okay. very soon by the time this episode drops. Everything from, again, just a huge amount of prop craft. I mean, because just like, how iconic are proton packs? And like, just so much <laughs> of the gear from the Ghostbusters in the original movie. And then in addition to that, he also got to visit the set and uh, did a video talking with the set designers and just the one cr- crazy detail from some of his content. I, again, I, I like that this is kind of the segue. We're beginning with the most recent chapter in Ghostbusters lore and then we'll rewind and go back to the beginning. But for the film Ghostbusters Afterlife, and for those who are unfamiliar, because I'm realizing as we're coming into this conversation, again, we, we have varying degrees of experience uh, with each other's favorite picks. Uh, the movie is set in present day uh, from the looks of things, and seems to be centered around Egon Spangler's grandchildren, which, as a fan of the franchise, is just incredibly heartwarming because Harold Ramis is the only Ghostbusters actor who is no longer with us. And so this chapter centers the story around Egon and his family that is still around, and they have inherited this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere that Egon clearly did not take good care of. And... There's all sorts of strange happenings going on in this town. And it, there's many elements, if you go back and watch the trailers, that it's like, oh, they are they are going back to the original Ghostbusters film in terms of the threat of Gozer and the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and the terror dogs and different elements. Yeah, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like I've seen or been seeing previews for this for at least a year and a half or two years, maybe. Thank you, pandemic. Three. Yeah, it has is been pushed back, and I think back? it is finally getting okay. a Thanksgiving weekend release. Because I, 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 right. I do remember seeing this preview now mm-hmm. that you're now that you're bringing it up, and because before I was like, I was completely 
oblivious. Wasn't Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things in it? Yep. Yeah, yes, okay. he is. Then yep. I have seen there this is, trailer. There is a young male and young female lead. He's the male lead. Yep. Okay. And then when my brother saw the trailer, and, and Don has now also been on the podcast, and he saw the role that Paul Rudd is playing in it, he's just like, oh, He's the entire fan base who's telling these kids about the legacy of the Ghostbusters. But he's like, oh, New York in the 80s? It was like The Walking Dead. And just like so many elements that obviously it's the trailer. You never know what in the trailer is actually going to wind up in the final film. But that is a brilliant premise. And just the whole setup of, hey, we get this next generation of Ghostbusters and we're bringing back the actors and they're going to be playing their original parts. Uh, the most recent trailer ended with a phone ringing in an occult bookstore a hand picking it up and you hear Dan Aykroyd very clearly just go, we're closed. <laughs> just oh, so that'll wonderful. be too good. Yeah. I, oh now, I'm, now I'm excited. So yeah. Well, let me add to that excitement. And, and cause this is one thing that stuck out to me uh, because I think this is something else that Ghostbusters is very much known for. As far as the iconic characters, obviously the iconic props, the writing is brilliant. Uh, the, Cast of Ghostbusters was on uh, Josh Gad's Reunited Apart series when they were doing a bunch of Zoom interviews with casts uh, from old movies and getting back together. And Gad asked Ernie Hudson about the the line, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say <laughs> yes. And almost immediately Dan Aykroyd goes, that's a Ramus. <laughs> Just... <laughs> The quotes and elements from the original movie that are either in the original script, but also just, again, like thinking back to the original film and the fact that you've got Second City and SNL elements coming in there, there was at least something improvised in pretty much every single scene. I think the line, this isn't going to be like the time you tried to drill a hole in your head, is it, Egon, was in the script, but then Ramus's response of, that would have worked if you hadn't stopped me, was improvised, and it's perfection. <laughs> So that it's safe to infer that your favorite Halloween movie is Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Yes. Well, and I, I had to, I thought long and hard about this because because I have another favorite that's very close. I I absolutely love Young Frankenstein, and Mel Brooks has come up on multiple episodes Frau, of this podcast that weren't dedicated to him. <laughs> Thank you. Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah, and, and and again, eminently quotable. Oh, it's so it's well, all I cool. I had a great experience showing that to my family for the first time this year. None of them had ever seen no. it. Really? Which is always a joy. Whenever you find someone who's never experienced, mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, I get to show you this. Yeah. My dad was the one who showed me, and he was super excited about it. When I was like, I was like yeah. 15, maybe? I can't remember if I've mentioned this on the podcast yet, and it's something, again, that I've heard from Don when he talked about the production of Young Frankenstein, and that was just the, the disagreement that he and Gene Wilder got into, because <sighs> it blows my mind that Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein came out in the same year. They're both from 1974. Oh, wow. And they're two of Mel Brooks's finest films. What? <laughs> yeah. The conversation, had, I think, had to be something like, basically, the extent to which Gene Wilder is just chewing the scenery, especially during the creation of the monster, which is just absolute insanity. <laughs> or the going from zero to 100 when, with the moments like, if science teaches us anything, it's that we must accept our failures as well as our successes with quiet dignity and grace. You son of a don't get you for this. What did you do to me? What did you do to me? Yep. I do not want to live. I do. anyway. Okay. Yep. So coming back because coming back. yes, as you can see young Frankenstein, my second favorite, favorite Halloween, Halloween movie. movie, Ghostbusters is still number one. And part of that is also like where young Frankenstein 
is able to lean into the entire aesthetic of the golden age of the universal monsters. The fact that it's shot in black and white. Yeah. The fact that I think they even were able to get old props out of yep. storage for the lab. From that the they, original yeah, exactly. Design. That you have these pieces that it's much of the same materials in terms of just how iconic this laboratory looks for exactly that reason. But one thing that Ghostbusters has going for it, as I was thinking about, again, just different elements of the movie, is the fact that in so many ways, and you have this with a lot of films that use their setting to their advantage, New York City is very much a character. The New York Public Library and the facade with the lions is iconic. The firehouse itself is iconic. And you have those, those places and the elements of that film that hold up because then, I mean, the fact that, and this is one of those things where it's like you can go back and it's just, it blows your mind what an amazing original property this was and just blew up. And between Ghostbusters and toys and merchandise that my siblings played with when they first came out in the 80s and then I got to play with as I was growing up, and the fact that I think growing up I definitely had that false sense because as a kid, you never really know how old anyone is. Mm. And it's like, oh, Ghostbusters came out like whatever a few years ago. And then I have a very skewed sense of like how old Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd actually are at that point. And having that movie as part of my childhood was so amazing in so many ways. Because, I mean, again, this is also the heyday of horror practical effects. Like if we take a filter from 1974 to 1984... It's um, unbelievable how many insane horror movies come out during that time. As far as the setting goes, and this is something that's really cool about the upcoming film, Ghostbusters Afterlife, and I'll make this the last point that I make about the new film, more than likely, is uh, when Adam Savage got to tour the set, the farmhouse that is being used as one of the primary settings for the film is both an interior and an exterior set. That is rare. Hmm. Usually interiors of a specific building or place are built in one location. And then when you need to film exteriors, you go to someplace completely different. Mm -hmm. It's all one thing. They have a farmhouse that is serving as the central fixture for Ghostbusters Afterlight and everything's in it. And the exterior shots are shot in the same building. And that's just one thing that's really cool and fits well within that New York character idea or the fact that the setting is so significant to Ghostbusters lore. It's another film that walks that line perfectly. And this is where, as we started playing this conversation, it's like, oh, this is a perfect counterpoint to Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because it's an amazing comedy. It's hilarious. That also has terrifying elements with the terror dog coming out of Dana Barrett's furniture and grabbing her is absolutely, is absolutely chilling. Whatever the hell happens in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. that's yes, the thing indeed. that honestly I think scared me the most yeah. just like what the heck is going on what, in this fridge what Dana sees and then obviously later you get look at all the junk food <laughs> that <laughs> do you too. actually eat this you stuff? actually eat it oh gosh no, it's just so well done the other thing that I have heard Ghostbusters praised for and I love this as a compliment even if on, on its face it maybe doesn't sound like one is that Ghostbusters is the greatest movie ever made about nothing Like, there is no moral to Ghostbusters. There is no, you're going to watch this and take away this idea. Like, it is about a bunch of guys who start a business and fight ghosts. And that's the basic premise. (laughs) Like, there is really not a word. And it almost feels weird when you get to Ghostbusters 2 in 1989 and, like, the, 
we need to be nicer to each other. And like the moral of the story feels kind of shoehorned in. It's weird that Ghostbusters is about something as they go back to the well, but still kind of don't just maintain that, hey, this is just a story about these guys starting their business and fighting ghosts. And you have a first act that is them getting started. You have an extended sequence in the hotel. In the hotel sequence of the movie, you have the actor Michael Ensign playing the hotel manager. And he also pops up as a hotel manager in The Wall, the 80s film version starring Bob Geldof. He's a hotel manager who comes in during Comfortably Numb when Pink is unable to perform. And there's the in that that whole part of that movie. So it's like Michael Ensign is typecast as a hotel manager in the 80s, and it's kind of beautiful. Huh. And you get, obviously, the iconic Slimer. You yeah. get just so many of these, whether it's the transformation of the woman in the library or all of these different moments with these ghosts in the film that, oh my gosh, the practical effects are just unreal. Mm-hmm. And this rabbit hole I'm about to go down could be an episode unto itself. But going back to that idea that from 74 to 84, you just have an insane amount of horror movies that come into the fray. Like my, one of my favorite just straight horror films is probably 1978's Dawn of the Dead. And my brother and uh, both of our wives, we just did a, a double feature on Friday night watching Land of the Dead <laughs> from the mid 2000s. Uh, the unrated director's cut, so spectacularly gory, oh, followed yeah. by The Silence of the Lambs. Two Ooh. very different movies, okay. oh. both quite intense for different reasons. And you have this, also, side note. Silence of the Lambs, that's one of those psychological ones that I really enjoy mm-hmm. being At thoroughly same. creeped out by Oh gosh, every time. Focusing on that era, because again, in 78, you have Dawn of the Dead, which is one of my favorite zombie films. Like I've always thought of kind of like, when it comes to... Like, obviously, the show The Walking Dead is based off of a comic book. Dawn of the Dead feels like a comic book zombie film, just in between, like, the colors and the aesthetic mm-hmm. and kind of just the way the story plays out, and you have this just kind of wonderful, okay, we're following these four survivors, and it also forever ties in zombie films and shopping malls, and the makeup and the effects of the era are still do their job. I mean, there are moments that are graphic and terrifying, but it's not quite to the spines getting pulled out in silhouettes that we have in land of the dead. And then also in that era you have, uh, we did an episode focusing on blues brothers. So I guess it's appropriate to reference John Landis and American werewolf in London comes out in 1981. Yeah. And you have maybe the most iconic werewolf transformation of all time. And again, just the use of practical effects, everything from brilliantly done. Yeah. Oh, just my brilliantly word. done. Yeah. And you have as well, uh, the things that John Carpenter does because you have mm-hmm. Halloween come out in 78 and then you have the thing come out in 81. Mm-hmm. You have alien come out in 78. That's one of the ones that gets some seriously high praise for its practical effects. Mm-hmm. Plus Absolutely. Ridley Scott, who's a bit, I'm a, I'm a fan of pretty much everything that director has done. Well, and it's cool to go from Abbott and Costello where the effects, you know, were what they were. I could see the string. Yeah, but you could see the strain, and you just sort of give it a, like a hand wave. Yeah, you go. But yeah, in this it. era, it was it was like an explosion of oh wow, we figured out how to do all these cool new effects, and just how can that impact the horror genre, and just all the crazy stuff we can do with it, and to do it largely one hundred percent without computer aided 
anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all practical. It's and all practical. I would argue then at that point, like if we're talking about iconic transformations from films from the year 1981, the deaths of the Nazis at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, obviously not a Halloween movie, but in terms of horror effects, it's horrific. Moment, oh my it word, is horrific. It is amazing. That, that gave me nightmares when I saw it the first time. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, five. absolutely. <laughs> and so you have, again, as we're again starting this kind of, again, taking this little filter, and you could obviously go back a few years or forward a few years and pick up a few more films in the 70s and 80s. It's just an amazing era. But then we get to Ghostbusters, and we have the freaking Stay Puft Marshmallow Man the <laughs> marching <Stay> Puft Marshmallow <laughs> down the... the street. No one steps on a church in my town, and it's so incredibly <laughs> well done. And just like, and from the, okay, we're building the prop, we're having this, there's the way everything that, that was done to pull that off and to make you like just the fact that I think in so many ways, practical effects when done well in so many of these Halloween films that we enjoy, don't take you out of the movie the way a moment of, Oh, that CGI wasn't quite right. Might. And we, and we talked about that all the way back when we did our point of the apes episode, the practical effects element that is probably worthy of its own episode. I feel like in so many ways, this, oh, is, yeah. kind, this is kind it of, can, the, it could definitely be, this is kind of the strike first. Okay. Where we are digging into some elements that we could totally uh, go back and, and dig more into later after we've done a bit more research, you have still phenomenal writing credit to to Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd and everyone who was involved in that process and the fact that I guess this is the other thing to say about movies of this era like the fact that obviously John Carpenter is forever associated with the thing to an extent but also Halloween I mean just in terms of like okay synonymous film and director Ivan Reitman and Ghostbusters I I mean Mm -hmm. you you Mm -hmm. cannot talk about his career without talking about the film that he is most connected to and I think in a lot of ways like you could also make an argument that Peter Venkman and Ray Stance are also maybe the characters that Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray are most associated with, which with how oh, yeah, long sure. and extensive their careers have been to this point is kind of mind-blowing. It is a star. Yes. <laughs> right. They even got those two on the Reunited Apart. They, they got the guy and the girl from his initial ESP test oh, on, on, the, on that show. It was so good. Me. Yeah. Oh, my word. I guess, actually, this is especially given backgrounds and music present in the room have you ever played a halloween playlist and ghostbusters theme hasn't been on it i mean as far no. as songs no. for I mean, not associates... any good ones <laughs> <laughs> i mean just the extent to which that is forever in the cultural zeitgeist. Oh, it's gonna if be. there's maybe again like a weekend i guess i've talked a little bit about everything whether it, we're talking about practical effects whether we're talking about the writing the performances the props the that setting, freaking theme song man that might be more <laughs> embedded in the popular culture than well, anything and that's one reason why i think ghostbusters is such like such a cultural landmark it's it's like the perfect like each domino fell in place perfectly. Every, everyone you had bill murray who just happened to be you know involved with dan Aykroyd and snl and all that stuff at the right time you have ivan reitman coming you have ray parker jr finishing the song i think like right before the movie was supposed to come out he like finished the theme song for it oh it doesn't happen yeah. it doesn't it doesn't ever happen and it because it puts a perfect point oh, on the good. it puts a perfect point on the film at the end of the first movie and then it's almost weird like it becomes so iconic in the intervening years that when you get to ghostbusters 2 it's diegetic because they're singing it at a party like hey this is our theme song in the real <laughs> oh, world and i think if i, I remember, remember correctly one of the kids at the party who's so disappointed that the ghostbusters are there because that's the plot of ghost part of the plot of ghostbusters 2 is ivan's son jason 
who is the director of Ghostbusters Afterlife, keeping that familial connection to the franchise alive. That's really cool. That's cool. And we're back where we started with, again, looking ahead to Ghostbusters Afterlife, because I am so excited to see that movie. We're gonna, we're, you know what's going to have to happen is we're all going to have to go see it, and then we're oh, going to yeah. have to do an episode about it. Our conversation <laughs> now is obviously about different eras. With that, I will kind of throw things over to Caleb, to Caleb for your yeah. pick, given the Phantom of the Opera kind of takes us from that original horror era and brings us into the modern day. We're still going back to a character and a story that is old. quite old. Very <laughs> really old. old. Like more, older than I even gave it credit for when I first saw The Phantom of the Opera. And we're seeing what these horror and Halloween characters look like in the 21st century. Well, and it's funny too because I'll tell people that my favorite Halloween movie is Phantom of the Opera and I'll get weird looks sometimes. Be like, that's not... It's a musical. Yeah, they're like, it's a musical. About? It's not a Halloween movie. And I'm like, no, it's all about the aesthetic. And what is more Halloween-y than dressing up in ridiculous outfits and making a fool of yourself? We do it every year on Halloween. We dress up in these big fancy costumes. So, personally, I think... I don't know. Musical is perfect for it. Great, I love those. I'd wear that every day if I could. Oh, the costuming and set design is really cool in the movie. But you have things like Sweeney Todd, and even continuing that trend of going back to old things and they redoing them, which is I feel like a lot of what the modern horror genre is, you know. Mm -hmm. But they just came out with a Beetlejuice musical. And when you have like when we when we have a conversation about like the modern Halloween movies and the different ways that we see all sorts of different interpretations. Cause there's obviously also been recent attempts. And I think attempts might be the right word to use to kind of reboot the universal monsters and franchises and yeah, kind they, of create their own cinematic universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, but we've seen within our lifetimes or slightly before great success to reinterpret in other ways. And no two models really work as well for the same monster. Like one of the definitive Dracula's obviously is Bram Stoker's from 92 with Gary Oldman's portrayal. And then completely different from that, maybe the definitive version of the mummy is 1999's action film starring Brendan Fraser, Arnold Vosloo as as the title monster. It's just so good. It's just so good. But then given the connection to music, there is probably no better way to experience Phantom of the Opera than as a grand scale musical. Well, and I think especially with horror movies, you find that one thing that works. That's why we keep doing Dracula. That's why we keep doing the mummy or Frankenstein over and over. And you go back from, you know, the original Phantom of the Opera book to the original Broadway version with Michael Crawford. And then obviously, yeah, the movie is the next like logical progression to it. It's fun for me too, because I remember being seven years old and my parents loved the musical. So they would play the original soundtrack and I couldn't listen to the whole thing because it's too scary for me as a seven-year-old. My brain, going back to that, you know, what you don't see, I filled in all the scary things that the Phantom was doing. And I was like, no, I have to turn it off. I'm like, I could. I remember having nightmares. I couldn't sleep after listening to the original Broadway soundtrack. And then you get to the movie and oh, it's so much fun. It's maybe not the greatest movie ever. It is Joel Schumacher of Batman and Robin fame. So it's probably his most competent film, I will say. I think it is his most competent film because if you hadn't reminded me that that's who did it, I wouldn't have remembered. If I don't say this, Lucas Gerke will say something because I would also argue, having watched it with Lucas for one of our spotlights, Phone Booth is also an excellent Joel Schumacher film. That's the same person? I I wipe that from my mind every time because it doesn't compute. (laughs) does not compute that's the same filmmaker what do they say broken clock is right twice a day 
Yeah. We hit both now. Two, two good movies. We got two. Well, and I will... The one thing I will say, and this is where you always want to find a property and a premise that is going to lean into a director's strengths. And... I think I'm pulling from Patrick H. Willems here when he talks about the Schumacher era Batman films. And it's like, is this, are the stories well-crafted? Well, obviously no, but the set design, the aesthetic, like the, the world that Schumacher builds, it's campy as hell and maybe doesn't fit Batman and hasn't aged great, but you apply that to something like Phantom of the Opera and it's perfect. His world building is impressive. And I think that comes out in the set, because the sets are so cool. The sets movie. are gorgeous. And the, the costumes are... And can we talk about Gerard Butler? <laughs> we can talk about Gerard Butler. I don't hate him as much as some people do. Some people very much disliked him in the role. Which I think is maybe because he was so different from Michael Crawford, the originator of the role on Broadway. I mean, he's the most like iconic voice of the Phantom. But he does a decent job. I feel like you could speak to that better than either I, of us in this room in terms of Butler's performance as a vocalist. As far as a vocalist is concerned, I honestly don't hate it. I don't. I know, I've attempted, I've seen how difficult the some of the Phantom's music is. I did Music of the Night for it's a vocal competition when I was hard. prepubescent. It was a bad idea. It, the range, the range necessary, the physical range necessary is just insane. And Butler did it with a grace that I think was actually the best he could have done, short of being somebody that the role was practically written for. Because not very many men have, I think it's a high A, high, I'm not even going to attempt it right now, down to low, like A or G. Like It is, it is an incredible, it's, it's like two plus octave range in one tune. And you're supposed to get through that and the rest of the show. So obviously Butler didn't do it all in one sitting like you would have to do for the Broadway. But even just to get through the music of the night and his other and the other things that, the, that you would be required to be able to do to sing that role. He I, he really didn't do as terrible of a job as some people have lambasted him for, uh, well, in my opinion. I think so many great horror films and movies have that like iconic moment, you know, when you first see Bela Lugosi's Dracula or any of the werewolf transformations. And for the Phantom, it's great because it's that musical hit. It's that organ. Dun, 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 dun. So just, just riffing off of a little Bach over here. No, they completely <laughs> took that. Uh, that's, that's the, that's a, that's a, page out of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. But beside the point, it, you know exactly what you hear every this, time you hear. This is why we have an expert on the mics. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, and, and coupled with the visual of the chandelier. The chandelier. And, the chandelier. and again, that's that, that element of prop craft and setting as story. Mm-hmm. And the half mask that covers his deformed, yes. the deformed part of his face is so iconic. I love that. I love in the masquerade scene when he comes in and he's got a half skull mask on with the, like the red like military jacket and the half cape on the side and his sword has a skull for a hilt i love the production design in this movie so much the action sequences between Gerard Butler's Phantom and Raul are fun to watch who is played by Patrick Wilson Patrick yes. Wilson and the, the Phantom and the music does a lot of his work, makes you uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Even as you start to sympathize with him, which I think everybody who watches it does. Yeah. You, you have to. 
makes you uncomfortable. The way that Music of the Night in particular is written, it is written so difficultly, partially because that difficulty is kind of, you know how hard he's working at this. And it's uncomfortable to listen to sometimes. Even sung really well, maybe not necessarily by Gerard Butler, but even sung really well, I get uncomfortable listening to Music of the Night. And I love to sing it. If I could sing it better, I would. It's just, the range is just insane. I mean, there's a reason it's run so long on Broadway. The music works so well on so many levels. Like you said, it. I mean, it makes you empathize with the characters, but it, the music, I mean, it's a musical. It tells the story. You don't necessarily need any of the visuals. Schumacher just adds that, you know, very intricate palette. All of his frames are so full in that movie. Like, there's there are very few shots that have, like, nothing in them. They're very cluttered, which works sometimes and doesn't work other times, but I tend to like it in this movie. And it's very, very melodramatic. Oh, it's, yeah. Like, everyone is feeling their emotions so much. And it's campy at times, too, which I think is another hallmark aspect of modern horror movies. They embrace, you know, the camp that's part of their history. One of my favorite shots from the movie is during the confrontation at the end between Raul and the Phantom, and he's got him, like, tied up against the portcullis. Yep. And he's, like, stringing a noose around him, and they're both turning towards the camera and, like, singing their hearts out at Christine. It's great. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. A theater is such a good choice for, like, a haunted, even if, even though it's a real guy in Family Opera. Like, it's, it's the perfect setting for a horror movie. Because, I mean, you've done plenty of theater. Like, Theaters climbing around creepy, backstage dude. and upstairs and all the rigging, it's, it's like... Ah, yes, it's very it, spooky. They could get creepy. And there's all these hidden very nooks creepy. and crannies. Yeah. yeah, you go back far enough and high enough up, and it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, no, this is a world unto itself. You have to contain everything that you are doing within the stage and the theater, and so much of that still works to such great effect, mm -hmm. even on film. I don't even know if I would say the movie is a worse way of experiencing it than the musical. It's just a different way. Because mm -hmm. when you go see the musical, you know, you're sitting in a theater, everything is happening you know, in real life in front of you. But like what my family always does, you know, we turn all the lights off. Sometimes there's like a little fire going and you just have the movie glowing in front of you. Like it's a very different atmosphere and feel to it. As I've gotten older, Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein has gone from just being the movie and popcorn to beer and movie and popcorn or whiskey and movie and popcorn. But I've seen the Phantom live as as a musical it was the traveling broadway cast and i do really still thoroughly enjoy the movie and comparing the two is a little difficult because the movie is is always the same every time you go back to it but the way that you shoot the movie changes a lot of the action and it, the set design that schumacher was able to employ is so much more grandiose than you could ever get even on an actual opera house stage like the Metropolitan Opera House in, in New York. That stage is, I think, four stories tall. They build buildings for the stage. It's incredible. Uh, look up some of that at some point. So in the original novel, it does take place in an opera house. Yes. I think there was a famous opera house in Paris that it's based off of. And if it's anywhere near the size of some of these old opera houses, like it gets... They're huge. They're way bigger than you realize. So... That massive set design that Schumacher was able to bring to bring to the movie is just so cool. If I might tie back to our old era of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, as well as the grandiosity of an opera, I mean, A Night at the Opera from the Marx Brothers shows <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the insanely elaborate elements that go into an opera performance. There's 
something to be said for the kind of spine chilling element or the, the, the moment where you just kind of w- what pulls you in and the experience of watching a movie during October and enjoying your, your Halloween festivities with your film of choice. What is that moment in the movie that pulls you in? And it's like, okay, yeah, this is why I keep coming back. What is that element that drives the film home? And I guess we will start with the oldest entry first. Okay. Um, I think what keeps bringing me back to watching Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein every single year is the comedy. It is legitimately funny against a backdrop and script that if you took Abbott and Costello out of it would kind of be pretty freaky. It would be that classic golden era monster freaky. And you've just added a, 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 a really cool level of comedy to the movie that as an aesthetic is just a lot of fun to come back to. So the funny creepy, especially the one scene that gets me every time is the scene when they go to the wax museum and start unboxing the monsters for the first time and the monsters come are actually alive and come alive around them. That is the scene that I go back to that movie for because it is the first time I saw it as a kid, it scared the ever loving out of me and uh, Costello's reactions to the monsters moving and not moving and Abbott being like, oh, you're just seeing things. There's just just the lights and let's get the electricity on and you sh- you're reading too much of this fantasy crap. That's the scene that I love, uh, I think, probably the most about the movie. That and the very, that very, very last scene with the Invisible Man. There's a quote in Ghostbusters that actually was carved in wood by my brother-in-law and now hangs in my parents' kitchen. And it's when Louis Tolle has been possessed by the key master and is brought to the Ghostbusters headquarters and he's offered, I think it's coffee and he's trying to decide how he feels about it. And Egon's response is yes, have some. And he goes, yes, have some. Yes, have some. It's in my parents' kitchen. <laughs> appropriately. That said, I can't talk about Ghostbusters and conclude this podcast episode without saying the phrase, don't cross the streams. Don't cross the streams. There's not an abundance of foreshadowing in the movie, but that is definitely the biggest element of we hear about it early on. Important safety tip. Thanks, Egon, when they're first going after Slimer in the hotel. And then it comes back when they have no idea how they're going to possibly defeat the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and Egon suggests that they cross the streams. Like, hold on. I thought you said crossing the streams was bad. bad. (laughs) (laughs) I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. It's like every character in every RPG. Anyway, no, but yeah, the build up to that moment, everything that has gone into zapping the door, Gozer's there, she disappears, empty your heads. It just popped in there. And the entire finale and everything that's led up to it. I mean, Ghostbusters has just an amazing third act. And it's also that element of, and this is something that also speaks to the element of horror and why first film horror entries are usually the most iconic are the fact that you are experiencing, oh, New York being completely overtaken by ghosts for the first time. You are seeing all these characters dealing with a scenario for the first time, and that's part of the realism because like, okay, wait a minute, really this is happening again or you're going back into this situation? Didn't we learn from last time? You're experiencing it all for the first time. Everything is brand new. It's one of my favorite franchises that I am so excited we are getting another entry in and we'll see how they solve the, I, a battle against Gozer this time around. I, I hope, I hope it's good. I really do. For me, it's gotta be right after Christine does her big first solo. And then she's in her dressing room. She's, you know, 
received all these accolades and awards and stuff, and then the haunting voice of the Phantom comes in and starts speaking to her. Because we've heard a little bit about the Phantom at this point in the movie, and like she's mentioned it, but we don't really know who or what he is. And then when he appears in the mirror, which is, you know, also iconic on the stage, and it's like, oh, this guy's actually here, he's real. And then when she goes through the mirror, she takes his hand, and then the theme song kicks in. Oh, I love it. And then he leads her down through the weird arms holding the candles and there's a horse out of nowhere it's like crazy and surreal i love that moment because it it takes you into okay this is going to be a crazy ride from now on like at that point forward in the story things are now ramped up so this entire conversation has come out of each of us sharing what our favorite halloween movie is obviously if you were listening to this that is something our team would very much like to know and this is perhaps a great time to plug the storytelling breakdown socials Uh, You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. Go ahead and fire off a message. Let us know what your favorite Halloween film is. We will obviously have the posts to go along with this episode when it is up. And uh, as always, we would love to hear from you. So thank you for joining us for this episode of Storytelling Breakdown. And happy Halloween. Hey everybody, welcome to the spotlight portion for this episode of Storytelling Breakdown. We are recording this on something of a special day uh, without the man of the hour in studio because of the day. It is uh, Caleb's birthday, the day we are tracking this. So happy birthday, Caleb, when you come back and listen to this episode at a later time. And in addition to that, uh, as we're introducing things here, I need to make a correction. Uh, Before we begin this spotlight, I need to make a correction to last spotlight. Uh, Caleb and I both talked about spotlights for our last episode. Uh, Caleb talked about Downton Abbey, and I talked about a very specific battle royale from Critical Role, which would be fine, except there was one detail that I got wrong that I feel like I need to own up to, which is I misidentified one of the characters. I am a novice critter at best, and I believe I mentioned that Sam Regal was playing his character Scanlan Shorthalt, which... He was not in that particular Battle Royale. I had watched other Battle Royales since then and where he had played Scanlan, and those were fresher in my mind. Uh, But in the particular Battle Royale, he was playing as the artificer Tarion Gary Darrington uh, to great effect. Again, still recommend that episode wholeheartedly, but wanted to go back and correct the record on that. Anyway, I do want to welcome a guest in studio who is a part of the Storytelling Breakdown team. She helps to manage all things social media for us. Ella Abbott, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad we finally had time to do this. Yes, indeed. Oh, my word. Glad we can have you on. And we've got a lot of things that we want to cover. Obviously, there's the additional context of the fact that you and I are both co-workers at 89.1 WBOI. And then we also both host our own podcasts and For me, that's Storytelling Breakdown. For you, 
that is coffee and cryptids which i would love for our audience to know more about so yeah. what are you guys up to right now and uh, what are some things you want to share i will say if you haven't listened to coffee and cryptids we have been working our way through each state to talk about certain urban legends or cryptids or ghosts or whatever is specific to a state or a region that's kind of spooky and we started doing this because we're both really into that kind of stuff. I think it's fascinating from a cultural standpoint, a historical standpoint. I love the concept. I always, I always wish that I had created like an urban legend when I was a kid. So if you haven't listened, that's the premise. But where it kind of ties into what we're talking about or what you guys have been talking about on this episode is last year for Halloween, we did do a kind of ranking our favorite and our absolute least favorite horror movie monsters. And that was Kate and I and then my friend Cameron who is a big movie person and he brought more knowledge than Kate and I dream of having when we host. If you haven't checked out Coffee and Cryptids, that's a great episode to start with. Now that we have an opportunity to talk about Halloween and Halloween movies, it does feel like sometimes we're just barely scratching the surface. Though you were telling me before we got on the mics, you did a project last year where it's like, okay, I've got 31 days in October, I'm going to watch 31 movies and you wound up overshooting. Tell me how that went. Yes. So I have, I'm just typically haven't been a movie person for most of my life. Um, I'm big on TV. It's why I'm here today. And I kind of sat down and I got back into horror movies as an adult. I liked them as a kid. And then as a teenager, they were too much for me. And now as an adult, I like them again. And I was like, okay, there's this whole history of classic horror movies that I haven't seen. And so I was like, I'm going to make myself a list. I'm going to get some input from friends who I know watch a lot of movies and make myself a list of 31 movies to watch throughout the month of October. And I ended up watching, I think, 52, somewhere around that range. Because I would end up watching a movie and then I'd be like, okay, well, that was fun, but now I'm still in the mood. So let's find something I can watch with that. What's something that's not on my list that I could add to this. It was a lot of movies, but it was very fun. I did not do it again this year. <laughs> what were some of your favorite pairings to come out of that? Is it's like, oh, I just watched this. Well, maybe it would pair well with this. You're probably going to have some hits and have some misses on that. But what were some of the hits? Yeah. So a lot of it, I will admit that a lot of it was like, I watched sequels. I watched Halloween 1, 2, and 3. Or like I watched The Shining and Dr. Sleep one after another, which was just an interesting thing to do. Those movies are just so different visual movies. But one pairing that I did, so I did Invisible Man, which was actually on my list as a movie I'd never seen. And then I finished it and I was like, what's a good movie to go with this? And I ended up watching Ready or Not, which came out in 2019. And those two movies pair well together. But I also would throw Jennifer's Body into that. If you're looking for maybe more of a lighthearted double feature, I would go Ready or Not and Jennifer's Body. But the three of them all kind of have similar themes. And then the other one is I watched A Quiet Place, which I had never seen. And obviously A Quiet Place is about these hyper auditory monsters that they have to be quiet. The flip side of that is the movie Hush. You get these really fascinating moments where you can't hear anything. There's no sound. It's a very like claustrophobic movie for a movie that's not about tight spaces. <laughs> you have that experience of kind of getting pulled in and white knuckling very much so as you're going yes. through the... Just there are some movies where you get them rolling and you just can't stop. If you want something a little more bonkers, though, I will add the last pairing is I watched I had seen the original Child's Play previously, so I didn't have that on my list. But my friend said, I don't care if you watch any of the other sequels. I want you to watch Bride of Chucky. I watched Bride of Chucky bonkers movie. 
I also have never seen the original Prom Night. My friend said, don't watch it. Watch Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Bonkers movie. Like, I have no other words to describe these two movies. And that's why I think, like, those are a good pairing if you just want to turn something on that's chaotic and crazy and not necessarily good, but fun. So again, I am thrilled that we are getting you on for this podcast episode to do a spotlight portion because this is an opportunity for someone from our team, someone from our community to talk about something that they love and why, potentially digging into a chapter of something or an episode of a show or a specific scene in a movie. There's all sorts of different ways to approach it, but I'm going to let you have the floor and uh, tell our listeners more about something that you greatly enjoy, which would be Mythic Quest. And if you haven't watched Mythic Quest and intend to, uh, we should preface this with a spoiler warning. Now that said, rock and roll, tell us about Mythic Quest. I feel like you can't talk about Apple TV streaming right now without talking about Ted Lasso. And so I will preface this with, I love Mythic Quest. And I got into Mythic Quest after I watched Ted Lasso because it was like, I already had Apple TV. I needed something else to watch. And oh, look, Danny Puddy's in it. Great. And I think that Ted Lasso being as big of a phenomenon as it has been for Apple TV has sort of buried some of the other gems on that service because I don't think anybody expected an Apple streaming service to have good shows. And then Ted Lasso happened and everybody was like, what's what's going on? What is this? What's what's happening? And I'm not going to lie to you and say that Mythic Quest is at all like Ted Lasso. It's not. <laughs> it's nothing like Ted Lasso. But it is in that same vein of hyper-specific workplace type of thing. Ted Lasso is soccer. Mythic Quest is video games. So Mythic Quest is a, if you don't, if you've never heard of it, Mythic Quest is a show, it's like a workplace comedy about a bunch of people who work in a video game production studio. So Mythic Quest stars and is created by Rob McElhaney. And it also stars Charlotte Nick Dow. And so Rob is the creative director and Charlotte is the art director. And it opens the show just immediately starts with they're just constantly butting heads and then you have david hornsby who is actually like the the actual boss of this company and no one respects him no one treats him like it he's just very nice and he's a doormat <laughs> everybody just sort of walks all over him what was really fascinating that pulled me in is i love community i love danny putty i watched ducktales for danny putty i watched flora and ulysses for danny putty and ben schwartz um and bobby moynihan was in that anyway <laughs> i love danny putty and i was excited to see him do something but especially he is just an absolute sociopath in this he is the head of advertising or he does the money stuff or whatever he gets to make decisions about how much things cost in the item shop how they market those items how they convince people to buy them you know and so he's a very stereotypical money man obsessed with money only cares about being rich and he's just evil <laughs> and he's fantastic in that role and the show i personally think does this it's actually an ubisoft show so it actually has that background of like, it's a video game show made by video game people, but it's also from a lot of the same people who do It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I have watched bits and pieces of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, but I would argue it has that same sort of mean humor to it where everybody's kind of terrible to each other, but in a fun way. <laughs> Their first season came out. I, I want to say a few months maybe before the pandemic hit and in April or May of last year they did a quarantine episode 
now a lot of shows were doing quarantine reunions, quarantine episodes. Parks and Rec did one that was good. It started to feel a little awkward, a little stilted, a little this is very clearly just a bunch of people on Zoom. And Mythic Quest did it in a way that I think it did the best quarantine episode I saw last year. They were all working from home. So, and we've, (laughs) you know, very similar feelings. They were having meetings on Zoom and poor David's trying to herd everybody like cats to get them into things. And and then it sort of broke off into everybody had their own storylines happening. And Poppy, which is Charlotte's character, her thing was she was just burying herself in work. And everybody was like kind of mocking her like, are you going to shower? You need to wash your hair. Like, you look terrible. Are you sleeping? Really not, like, not concerned so much as just mean. (laughs) And then at one point, you know, Ian, which is Rob's character, tries to reach out to her and she just snaps on him. And and he lives in this huge... At one point, they get on a video call with David and he's just sitting in a hot tub. And he lives in this huge estate. And she calls him out on, like, you're so afraid to leave your estate. Like, you don't, you won't do anything. Like, you're a big baby. You don't get to talk to me about what, how I'm dealing. There's a scene where he calls her and he's walking. You can see he's walking out um, on the street and they're chatting. And he's like, look, I left. Like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. And, and then there's a knock at her door and it's, you know, it's, it's Ian. It's not really Rob, but it's somebody dressed the same as his character in Shadow and they just hug for a long time and then he leaves. And that's what it was for Poppy is she was just so isolated and everybody else had, you know, people around or significant others or whatever. And she had just felt so isolated. And I think that that was something that was so surprisingly wholesome and genuine. It made me cry both times I watched it. I watched the episode twice and it made me cry both times. And I just think that if you watch nothing else from that show, that episode is worth worth watching. Um, there's also a hilarious side story with David Hornsby and Danny Putty, where David challenges Brad, which is Danny Putty's character, to a street fighter competition. And if David wins, he has to donate X amount of money to charity. And if Brad wins, he has to shave off one of his eyebrows. That's just a very funny, I won't even spoil how that one goes because it's just a very funny bit that <laughs> is worth seeing. And then before season two even came out, the show bounces back with another special episode that was a um, cosplay episode is the best way I can explain it. It was a fantasy episode. It almost sounds like LARPing. Yeah, it, yes, Exactly. Thank you. I could not think yeah, of the word good. LARPing. Yeah, <laughs> it is. And they all like build personas. They dress as characters and they have to fight like they do duel. The person who wins gets to get the light sword and return light to the realm. And it's all based on the story that Ian came up with back when he was creating the game. There's a really funny moment where Poppy as her character she's some sort of mage or whatever and she's like i've got fireballs and she's holding like a little orange like phone ball and she's like fireball and she throws it at ian and he without missing a beat catches it whips it back and it smacks her straight in the forehead and she just drops at the end of the episode they commit 
to this realm and these characters to the point that the show shifts into like a CGI world like it they go with the full green screen everything and like all of her fireballs are real and it's incredibly gorgeous it's shockingly well done <laughs> for a one-off episode in this little comedy and i i also you know in between scenes they use clips from actual video games the show really commits to like trying to understand the video game process and I, I feel like you can tell it's made by people who do love these games. They poke a lot of fun at Fortnite without outwardly saying it. It just really feels like a labor of love. And it's also such an interesting character study. Like, these characters aren't cardboard. They're very interesting and fun. And they're mean, but you root for them. Even Brad, he's so mean and awful to everybody, but you root for him. You're like, well... <laughs> I get it. <laughs> they have an episode where they're, I can't remember what her title is, but they have a woman who they keep locked in the basement, not locked, but they keep her in the basement who she interacts, she get, has to deal with all the player complaints and all of that stuff. And she's the most sunshiny person. And the whole bit is that like, it's creepier that she's not depressed having to deal with it. Like her being as like happy-go-lucky as she is is upsetting to them. So that's why they keep her in the basement. And there's a bit where they go down to visit her and she's like, you know, my, my I would love to come up and visit you guys, but my key card doesn't seem to work. And David's like, oh yeah, we'll have to get that looked at. Anyway, but there's an episode where she gets reached out to by a, some sort of video game magazine. They don't actually name one, um, or I don't think they do. And there's an article apparently that they have a lot of Nazis in the game. Like, a lot of Nazis. And they spend the whole episode, David and Brad spend the episode creating a quote-unquote ethics committee at Brad's behest, just trying to waste David's time to decide, like, who they can and can't ban from the game. And meanwhile, Poppy and Ian, Poppy's trying to, like, launch something that she's created called Dinner Party, which is, like, a private get-together sort of server that people can use. So she hosts a peaceful protest against the Nazis. And meanwhile, Ian's having the art team add in like SS patches. And it all comes together at the end of what he's trying to do. And it makes sense. But you spend the whole episode like, why are we embracing the Nazis? And that's actually a bit where he says, he, he says to David, we're not going to ban them. We're going to embrace the Nazis. And David goes, "What? No, no, we're not embracing Nazis. No one's embracing Nazis. <laughs> And, and that, I, I honestly think, is the, the best episode that that show did. Oh, my word. It's so fun. And I don't think enough people are watching it. And I will say, I know you all have Apple TV Plus because you all watch Ted Lasso. I know you have the subscription. Go watch Mythic Quest. Ella Abbott, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahoski joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Thank you so much for being here, Steven. Thank you for having me. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shaw Productions. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>